Well, it seems like a long time since I've done this. Um, nearly five months. So uh, I hope I haven't forgotten how to do it. Uh, I'm not sure that preaching is like riding a bicycle, but let's hope that uh, we do okay. Um, I think you would agree with me if I say that one of the most important human needs is the need to be loved. I don't think that would be a controversial thing to say. In fact, even modern scientists are beginning to understand some of why this is true, even though human beings have known this since the beginning of time. We were just talking recently at home about an article that appeared recently in a national newspaper. I think this popped up on my Facebook feed and caught my eye. Let me show you. Uh, this, this was the article, and this was the headline. What's the difference between these two brains? These pictures are cross-sections of two children's brains. What's the difference between them? Well, it, obviously one is bigger than the other. The intriguing things is, thing is that these two brain scans are apparently from children who were the same age. You would think that perhaps one of these children was very ill or something, and of course that is possible. But in this particular case, apparently the image on the right is a child who is abused and neglected and not loved. And the one on the left is a child who was loved. Abuse and neglect has actually physically prevented the child's brain developing and growing normally. Dr. Alan Shaw is a neuropsychologist. I was worried about saying that. At UCLA, which is the University of California, in Los Angeles. He is a leading authority on how our brains develop in the first few years of our lives when we're very small and an expert on something called attachment theory. He says in this newspaper article that the growth of the baby's brain literally requires positive interaction between the mother and the infant. The development of cerebral circuits depends on it. Now, we, we know there's all kinds of medical exceptions to this and medical problems. But generally speaking, scientists are beginning to realize that a little baby brain actually needs love in order to grow properly. It's not our purpose here to explore all science, although I'd love to do that with you. I'm just making the point, very simply that scientists are only just now beginning to compile observable evidence of something that we all already know and something that the Bible has been saying for thousands of years. Our children need to be loved in order to be healthy. For them to grow up secure and develop into adults who are capable of loving 
We human beings need to be loved and to be able to love. And so often our frustrations in life, our difficulties in, in life stem from all of this feeling broken. Well, what does this have to do with Matthew's gospel? We're not, this is not a science lecture. What does this all have to do with Matthew's gospel that we've been studying? Well, for a start, just look at what Matthew writes right here in chapter 9. And verse 36. Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I I think you'd agree with me. That surely has to be one of the most poignant and moving verses in all the Bible. And I think it marks a significant moment in Matthew's Gospel. I think this little section, if if you've got a Bible, by the way, stay with me here. And and, uh, if if you've got it open, this little section at the end of chapter 9 I think serves two purposes. It's like a bridge, in a way, that connects what has gone before with what what Matthew is going to say next. First of all, it's a summary statement. So everything that you've been thinking about while I've not been here, all the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the healings that Jesus did, all the miracles of chapter 8 and 9, It's all summarized very helpfully by Matthew right here in this verse. Verse 35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And this verse summarizes why. But secondly, this little section is also what I want to call a springboard that is going to launch us into some new material that goes in a different direction and builds on what Matthew's been already teaching us so far. In chapter 10, the focus is on Jesus then sending his disciples out to do what he's been doing. The summary statement is that Jesus has been doing good. Notice too that Jesus isn't like a doctor's surgery expecting the people to come to him. In verse 35, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages. Just stop for a minute and think about how busy Jesus is in doing good. There's no bus service. He doesn't have a car. Jesus is traveling on foot through the whole region with the precise aim of doing people good. He's on the move, all over the place, busy, traveling far and wide, using his power and authority to restore people who are broken. And his activity includes teaching and proclaiming and healing. It is all designed to put people back together, even to put their communities back together 
The springboard is that Jesus then goes on to inspire in chapter 10 his true disciples to do the same. And his words here, he, when, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Then he turns to his disciples and says, look at this, guys. The harvest is plentiful. The fruit is dropping off the trees. The problem is there isn't enough people to collect the harvest. Jesus' heart goes out to people. And he urges his disciples to get involved in the same work that he's been doing. And in chapter 10, Jesus gives his disciples his authority. He is the one that sends them. King Jesus delegates his authority to them and tells them to go and do what he's been doing. In verse 7 and 8 of chapter 10, it includes the same proclamation and the same healing ministries. I think there's a bit of added spice here as well, in that Jesus knows that all of this compassion is not always well received. In verse 33 of chapter 9, We're told that the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees called Jesus the devil incarnate. He's only doing it by the devil's power. He went around doing good and they accused him of being the devil incarnate. Imagine that. It will ultimately cost Jesus his life, but he warns his disciples too that as they go to share his compassion with people, the same things will happen to them. They'll call you nasty names. Jesus says to them, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. There's a danger as you love people that you might, like me, get torn to pieces. Just look with me at chapter 10 and uh, verse 16. Jesus says to them, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Incredible. So, what did we say? Everyone needs to know that they are loved. But the truth is that not everyone wants the love of Jesus. There's both compassion and conflict here in the life of Jesus, and he predicts it in the life of his followers. Well, with with that little summary in mind, there you go. Jesus sent his disciples. You've got to forget that one. 
with that little summary in mind, here's what we're going to do. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at chapter 10. Today, I want us to pause over this little section at the end of chapter 9 and just reflect together on the fact that the whole mission of God in this world and for this world is based on his great compassion for broken people. We need to know that we are loved and that love ultimately comes from God. I've got three very simple observations. They're quite repetitive about three different groups who need to know that they're loved. This is how we'll do it. Three different groups. Number one, I want to uh, show you that the people Matthew is writing to need to know that they're loved. That might seem a little strange. We'll zoom in to chapter 9 in a little while, but first of all, we're going to zoom right out and look at the big picture for a minute. Matthew, don't forget, is writing all this stuff to a particular group of people. He's not just randomly, aimlessly writing this stuff. This isn't even Matthew just giving information to people. He's not just writing a biography of Jesus. Matthew writes with a pastoral, loving heart to help his readers and to encourage them. Here's the thing. The first century was pretty unsettling if you were Jewish. And even more so, like Matthew's readers, if you believe that Jesus is God's promised king. Some Jews who believed in Jesus found that they couldn't continue attending their synagogue with fellow Jews that they'd grown up with and who didn't believe in Jesus. But there was worse to come. In AD 70, trouble broke out and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. The temple in Jerusalem was flattened For a few centuries, actually, the Temple Mount was used as a rubbish dump. Many Jews fled Jerusalem. And the Jews who Matthew's writing to here are basically what we might call religious refugees. Here are a group of Christian believers who don't know where they belong anymore. They've been kicked out of their synagogues. And they're not at home there. Now they've fled and they don't feel fully at home where they've gone to. Some Bible commentators believe that Matthew's writing to a group of Jewish believers in Syria. And we, we know what's going on in Syria now. <laughs> These people were living in Syria. Are they allowed to meet with Gentiles, non-Jews, who believe in Jesus? Don't know. Should they start a new synagogue specifically for Jewish people who now believe in Jesus as well? Don't know. Should they just give up and fall through the cracks? Don't know. The point is, the people Matthew's writing to, they don't feel at home anywhere. Their past has been uprooted. Their future is uncertain. They do love Jesus they do want to follow Jesus, but they don't know how to do it or who to do it with. Matthew 
Matthew's gospel is amazing because Matthew is writing the story of Jesus to Christian believers who feel marginalized, vulnerable, confused, and not at all sure what they're meant to be doing. These confused refugees need to know that they're loved. They need a better story than the miserable one that they currently have. They need to be encouraged, reconnected, to find their purpose again. And so Matthew tells them the story of Jesus, the Son of God, the promised King. And what happened to him? He was also rejected by his own people. He went around doing good and ended up being opposed and criticized and eventually taken out of the city and hung on a Roman cross. They murdered him. And yet, he triumphed over all of it by rising from the dead And it now becomes clear that this whole story wasn't an accident, but had been planned by God all along to bring the good news of human salvation, not just to Israel and Jewish people, but to the whole world. What Matthew is doing is showing this dislocated, depressed group of confused ones that the kingdom of God is bigger than their ethnicity. This is about God bringing salvation to the whole world through Jesus. His kingdom is made up of people who are loved by God, forgiven by God, saved by God, united by God. In one common purpose, to proclaim this good news of Jesus to a world that doesn't even know that it needs him. Matthew writes to show them that the story of Jesus is their story. He writes to unite them and ignite them. Matthew's gospel is designed to pick them up off the floor and put them back together and give them permission to go and be his people. Just, uh, just look with me at where Matthew's gospel ends. If you've got a Bible there, just go to the end of Matthew. And uh, the very last words of this book make sense when we see Matthew's gospel in that light. The very end of Matthew, Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven. And they go outside Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us these words. Just imagine you're one of these depressed refugees hearing these words. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go! 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Can you imagine those depressed ones reading that and getting to and going, we don't need to be depressed anymore. This story is our story. We can't go home. We don't need to go home. This is the pinnacle of the whole book. Sometimes the Gospel of Matthew, to me, seems like a plane taking off. And these depressed ones have got their suitcases. They're in the airport terminal. They don't know whether to go home or which plane to get on. Matthew is giving them a boarding pass and saying, Get on this plane, guys. We're going somewhere. He invites them to participate in the kingdom of God. Man, I'm suggesting to you that these people need to know that they are loved and that they're free to participate in this great drama. And Matthew writes his whole gospel to show them that that is true. Some of you, I think, can relate directly to this. You've come to faith in Jesus and now your family thinks you've lost the plot. Some of you have even had to leave your home countries and flee. You too know and love Jesus. You too want to follow Jesus, but you're not sure how you fit in. Do I belong? I can't go back. I don't know how to go forward. You need to know that you are loved and that Jesus has a bigger story in mind that you are part of. And Matthew here offers you a boarding pass to get on that plane with us here So as we zoom out and think about the big picture, I want you to see that the love they need here is a love that brings purpose and direction and enabling. But we've got two other points to make, so let's rattle on. Point number two, I said these were repetitive. The people Jesus observes in his day also need to know that they're loved. You get the difference? There's recipients of this. But Matthew recounts what happened in Jesus' day. The people Jesus observes here also need to know that they're loved. What a poignant description there is here of desperate human need and the deep, sensitive compassion of the Lord Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, what, what he saw was not just a mass of people. He saw people who were harassed and helpless. Let's just pause there for a minute. The word for harassed used here by Matthew 
actually comes from the idea of being flogged, flayed, or skinned. And as Jesus observes the mass yearning of these crowds, he sees that they feel that life itself has so beaten them up and flogged them that they are black and blue, metaphorically speaking. Life itself has almost skinned them. What a picture that is. The word for helpless has the idea within it of being thrown down. Something thrown down, discarded, abandoned. What some of you know, that one of the things I got around to doing for for the first time in about 10 years while I've been on sabbatical is having a proper good spring clean in my garage. And I'm proud to say that I now actually know where all my tools are. It's frustrating. Where did I put my hammer last time I used it? The garage is tidy for the first time in ages. Very proud of that. If you ever come to our house, I'll give you a guided tour. But you all know that feeling when you're tidying up and you're picking things up and you kind of don't know where to put them because it doesn't quite fit any kind of category. And you don't want to throw it out. You think, oh, I might come in handy that one day. Men are terrible at this. Might come in handy that one day. But it doesn't quite fit on that shelf and it doesn't go in that, but I'll, I'll just put it over here until I work out what to do with it. That's kind of where this word comes from. These people are flogged from the outside and inside they feel like they've been put on a shelf somewhere and just left with no point. The word helpless seems to signify them not knowing what to do next. They're confused and disorientated. There's a pointlessness about it. This is a description of people who are just bewildered and weary. But that's not all. Matthew tells us that Jesus sees something else here. These people are not just harassed and helpless. They are like sheep who don't have a shepherd. The picture here is of a great farmer's field. And in the corner, you can picture the scene. There's a little bunch of impoverished, scratched, bleeding, undernourished sheep just cowering, lying there, abandoned. As Jesus surveys the mass of people in front of him, that's the kind of imagery that comes to mind for him. These people are bewildered. Jesus is like, where are the shepherds? Where are the the leaders? Where are the people who care for these people? It's almost like the compassion of Jesus for people seems to make him angry with their leaders. Where are your leaders, the shepherds who are supposed to love you and nourish you and inspire you? Where are they? They're calling him the devil incarnate and feathering their own nest. That's what what they're doing. Let me just make some observations here about the Lord Jesus. Matthew tells us here that Jesus is deeply moved 
by the desperate condition of the people around him. It hits him right in the gut. Why does Jesus give the people the Sermon on the Mount? Because he's moved with compassion. Why does Jesus travel from town to town, pouring his life out in good deeds towards broken people? Because he's moved with compassion. Why does Jesus eat with all the sinners that Hillary Clinton would call the deplorables? Because he's moved with compassion. I'm not endorsing Donald Trump there either, by the way. (laughs) This great mass of people need to know that they are loved. First of all, Jesus is present and involved rather than absent. That means a lot, doesn't it? Do you want to know what God is like? God has a face and it is right here on display for all to see. Whatever anyone tells you about Jesus being weak or Jesus being some mythical figment of some weak person's imagination, it is a lie. Here he is in all his complicated, beautiful glory, rolling up his sleeves, getting his hands dirty in the mess of human brokenness. You want to see the face of God? Here it is. He loved them. He's present. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus is thoughtful and creative rather than dismissive. I I find it hugely encouraging that Jesus doesn't view the world as a lost cause. He doesn't look at people and go, they're they're beyond redemption. (laughs) What he sees is brokenness that needs compassion and healing. What he sees are victims. He sees people who are deeply yearning for something more. He sees people who are so broken they don't even realize that they need him more than the air they breathe. He sees people even who hate him because they're frightened of him and they know no better and his heart goes out to them. You see that? I want you to see thirdly that Jesus here is gentle and kind rather than blaming and shaming. Does it strike you, the fact that he is not harsh? Some of you, I would imagine, you've known harshness in your lives. Maybe you've known such harshness in your own life that it's made you think that there's something wrong with you. But look here, Jesus isn't losing his temper He isn't rolling his eyes or tutting. There's no sneering condescension. His heart is moved with compassion. His heart goes out to people who need more than anything else to know that they are loved. His life's work is not to shame people or humiliate people, but to love them. 
One writer I came across says this, Jesus knows the condition of the multitudes. They are lost. And his response to this sad fact is not anger, nor resignation. Rather, it is compassion and action. Fourthly, I want you to see here that Jesus is confident rather than paralyzed. It is easy, isn't it, to become depressed when we look out into the world? But look at the confidence of the Lord Jesus. We've seen something of his authority and power over these past few weeks. But in this passage, we see something else here. In chapter 9, here at the end, he urges his disciples to pray. The harvest is plentiful, he said, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. We'll think about that a bit more next week. But I just want you to know that for Jesus, this harvest field is God's harvest field. It isn't some random lazy farmer's harvest field. Jesus calls his father the Lord of the harvest. And I, I, want, you, I want to say to you, this world is still God's world. Even when the world hates him and is messed up and mixed up, Jesus here has the confidence that in the end, it is actually God who's in charge, not evil. God is the sovereign king. And Jesus, that, that's what spares him on and gives him energy. He's not paralyzed or overwhelmed. He's confident. And I, I want to sum that up by saying that Jesus, the great thing about Jesus, you know, is that he's not broken himself. I don't think it's possible in life to do good work, really good work, without doing it from a place of security. Jesus isn't doing all this because he feels guilty. He isn't doing this because he has some deep need to feel useful. <laughs> he isn't running about everywhere doing good to people to make up some lack that he feels inside of himself. He's not doing it because he's dysfunctional. This is not some kind of crutch for him to lean upon. You know what the Bible says? God is love. Love comes from God. He's not a monster. He is free to lavish his compassion on people like you and me. In a way, this all flows out of chapter 3. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? John the Baptist. And Jesus hears a voice from heaven. And that voice says, this is my son my love with him I'm well pleased the reason Jesus is like this is because he is completely secure in his father's love his father gets him feels him knows him and loves him and takes delight in him and is proud of him. And every waking breath of Jesus was lived in the sunshine of his father's pleasure. 
That is why he can come into a broken world and take all the abuse. That is why he can give and give and give and give and give again. Because his resources never run out. Listen, let me ask you something important. Do you see God like this? What do harassed and helpless and leaderless people need? Surely they need someone to feel them and get them and understand them and know them and be able to ignite them again. In the first section, we saw people who needed a love that would give them purpose. And here, in this second reflection, we see a love that binds up people's brokenness. And that leads us to our third point. Number three, we are the third group. We too, surely, need to know that we're loved, don't we? What has struck me about this whole narrative is how different the love of Jesus is to the love of the world. The world says, be whoever you choose to be. But the love of Jesus says, be who God has created you to be. I think we want a love that simply allows us to be our chosen selves. Whereas the love of Jesus comes into the world to save us from ourselves and lead us to be truly human and truly free. Let me just take a moment or two just to explain that. Our Western world, I think, has come now to believe that the highest good of humanity is freedom. This one truth trumps all other truths. And uh, one writer I came across describes this idea as potent and persuasive. I I don't think we even realize that we believe this most of the time. The reason it's persuasive is because this doctrine, if you like, gives us a sense of liberty from authority. No one can tell me what to do. It gives us a sense of limitless inner possibilities. And it gives us a sense of profound personal dignity. I think everyone you meet believes this. Authority is assumed to be restrictive and limiting. We're taught that we can be whoever we choose to be and that we need to look within ourselves for those possibilities. One of the problems is that in the end, we actually end up believing in nothing at all outside of our own selves. The only thing that counts is our own individual choice. And it's not even that people are unspiritual. We do seem to yearn for something more, but what we do is we shop around for gods that will be whatever we want them to be so that we can control them and use them. We yearn to be free, and it all seems so plausible, 
But isn't it true that at the same time it makes us so anxious and lonely and unsure and there's always a lurking sense there's got to be more than this. One of the underlying reasons that our society rejects faith as being gullible is because it assumes that faith always limits our freedom. The assumption is, you'll know this, the assumption is that human civilization is moving from the dark ages to utopia. We're taught that we need to grow up and throw off superstition and belief in all these myths that are dark and unscientific and irrational. Don't be gullible. Grow up. Be mature. Be strong. Be independent. Tell me, where does that take us to? One writer I was just reading this past week says this. Our context is one of increasing uncertainty. Deep-rooted pessimism. Latent fear of the future. There's fear of economic decline. There's fear of increasing destruction of the natural world and its resources. There's fears of wars rashly started whose consequences are incalculable. And fear of accelerating technological developments which scarcely allow time for our heads and hearts to catch up with or come to terms with. The truth is, Actually, we too are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And of course, these issues are not primarily political. They're deeply spiritual. Right here, Matthew gives us a better story. The love of Jesus, the deep, sensitive compassion of Jesus is not limiting This is actually the love that we all yearn for deep down. The love of Jesus is not designed to prop up our sense of individual choice. His love comes to us in our shame and brokenness and calls us out of ourselves to follow him. His love is the love that leads to true fulfillment. In other words... Listen carefully. I'm saying to you, human life flourishes where Jesus is known and followed as king. That is the gospel. Human life flourishes when Jesus is king. In one place, the Bible says this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The issue, friends, is that all of us in different ways go astray. We try to satisfy the deep yearnings of our hearts with all kinds of things instead of turning to the God who made us and loves us. And even then, he responds to that by taking our guilt on his shoulders and dying to save us. He truly is the good shepherd. 
I'm sure that even the Pharisees wanted to be loved. Their issue was that they did not want to be led. They saw the face of God and thought he was the devil. What about you? Do you identify with being harassed and helpless like a sheep with no shepherd? Come and see the face of God in the compassionate leadership of Jesus here. Here is the love that you know deep down that you need. Here is the love that both picks you up and puts you back together and enables you to participate in this great drama. What Jesus desires is for you to embrace him as your saviour and to follow him as your king. That will mean saying no to some things and saying yes to other things. It means trusting him and being willing to turn from yourself to follow him. If you like, it means grabbing your suitcases and leaving the terminal and getting on the plane. And I know that many of you do love and seek to follow Jesus. Let me close with these great words from the Apostle Paul. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ.